0: Let's go ahead and uh, let's, let's pray once more, and then we'll get, in, we'll get into the Gospel of Matthew. Father in heaven, we say thank you for another moment of mercy. Right now as we breathe, we suck in mercy. You are always so faithful to us in spite of our unfaithfulness. We thank you for the way that you love us and the way you've supremely loved us in Christ the way that you sought us and rescued us out of darkness and drew us to behold the beauty of the sun that we might love him. Thank you for giving us hearts to believe and eyes to see and ears to hear. And we pray that right now in in these moments together that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. You fill me with your Holy Spirit, you would fill us with your Spirit, that we might, as we consider this weighty topic of church discipline from your word, that we would see it with eyes that would uh, would believe what you say, and that you would affect our churches, that they would be pure, humble churches for your glory and for our good. God, might you do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask for or imagine in our time together now. We pray, that, pray this in the name of Jesus. Everybody said... Amen, amen. Well, normally when you think about Super Bowl commercials, you think about kind of goofy things about cats, you know, cooking eggs or doing some kind of weird thing, the gimmicky deal. But a number of years ago, I think it was in 2004, there was a particular Super Bowl ad that quieted many a living room. It was a it was a black and white ad that it was silent and the camera angle began behind a woman and she was standing out on a dock looking down into the water. You couldn't see what she was looking at. Then the the camera angle changed and it went around to the front and you could see just from kind of here up and she was staring down into the water. And then it panned to behind her up above where you could now see that she was standing on a dock, looking down into the water at someone who was drowning. And you could hear this person grasping for air and the water just churning. And it lets you watch it for a moment. And then it just went to darkness, and they posed a question. And they said, if your friend was drowning, would you do nothing about it? It was a commercial for for drug prevention, and how if you have a friend who's on drugs, you need to intervene and, and to help them. I remember seeing that and how sobering it was. And as I think about that that picture, you've got you to wonder how much more than in the church. How, how, if If someone you care about is being eaten alive by by drugs, how how much more ought we as God's people be concerned when we look out and see one of our fellow brothers and sisters being consumed by sin, seeing them drowning in in iniquity? God desires his church to be a people who who loves one another in such a way that you're going to go get them James five says it this way, Brothers, if anyone among you, when in your church, anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's the kind of of culture that God intends for his his churches to have. One where there is a, there's a committed love for one another that reflects the same kind of love that Christ has shown us. A culture where we are compelled by grace to do really whatever we can to rescue wandering brothers and sisters from being consumed by their sin. But just like helping someone who's, addicted to drugs can be a, can be a tricky thing. We we know that when when someone is ensnared in sin, we need we need wisdom of how to pursue these wandering sheep. When when to push, when to to slow down, when to speed up. And and when and how to give someone over and say if that is the way that that you want to go and we're going to let you go. How do we, how do, we do that? How do we create a culture in a church where we love one another in that way and know how to walk through rescuing wandering sinners? Well, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18 is going to be our text for the next few moments together as we consider what it means to create a culture of church discipline in, in our local churches. Matthew chapter 18 as you're turning there just kind of a brief snapshot of what's happening in the gospel of matthew you have jesus who is the king he has come and he is the king the creator of all things and he is showing everybody who's listening the true law the true interpretation of the law he's the king he's given the law of what it means to live on his earth and it's exposing everybody all the way down to the heart level that everybody has rebelled against the king there is great treason that has happened But this king is a gracious king and he goes and he lays down his life on the cross and he dies there and takes the judgment that sinners deserved, and then he rose from the dead. And now he sends out a good message, a message of good news that if anybody will bow a knee to the king and turn from your treasons, that you can be reconciled. You can be brought into his family, come to the table of the king and dine with him. You will know mercy. And what that should do then is create a people who are a merciful people with one another. And that's what the church is intended to be. And as we come to Matthew chapter 18 and we think about this idea of church discipline, we're going we're to have two big ideas that we're going to be thinking about. The first is the posture of the church. The posture of the church. In light of the mercy that we've received, how should that shape uh, our posture toward, toward one another, and particularly toward wandering sheep? And then we're going to talk about the process for the church. How do we go about rescuing one another? What does that that mean? What does that look like? How do we do that? So the posture of the church and the process for the church. All right? So Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples, and they're talking about what, what does it mean to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And in chapter 18, verse 4, Jesus says, well, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Greatness in Christ's kingdom is seen in humility that is produced by grace. Then he goes in verse 5 and he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. He gives this vivid picture that reminds us that we must be very careful with how we deal with each other. And not be a source of stumbling for one another. Picks that up in verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. It's, It's happening. It's part of the plan. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And in verses 8 and 9, he's going to tell you to do whatever you can to make sure that you're not the one who's going to cause somebody to, to stumble. And in the context here, to cause to stumble by wrongly relating to them in their sin. Either by being harsh with them, or also by implication, by being, being passive and allowing them to be, to be consumed. Now verse 10... See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Don't look down on other believers. Don't think lightly of them. Don't treat them with contempt. And that is going to be a temptation when you're dealing with fellow brothers and sisters who are wandering off into sin. It's going to be easy to begin to get kind of fed up. Why are you doing this again? To get irritated, to get exhausted. To begin to wonder, why why do I seem to care more about their souls than they do? He says, guard your heart. Don't despise one of these little ones. But rather, consider Christ's love. Verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The will of God the Father is that none of his little ones, none of, his, none, none of the disciples of Christ, none of the children of God should perish in their sin. And that is why Jesus came, right? Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus has a rescuing, uh, yeah, a risking rescuing love for his, his people. He left the glories of heaven to come to earth to rescue the flock of God. The good shepherd sought out his lost sheep. He did that for you, didn't he? He did that for me. Do you remember how he did that? Do you remember how he sought you? Do you remember that season of life where he met you? How he, the God of the universe, arranged circumstances and situations to bring people into your life, to awaken you to your state and to bring you unto himself. Do you remember the sweetness of your salvation? How the good shepherd sought you out while you were far away? And how has that good shepherd loved you since that day? Has he not done the same thing? Has he not been patient and gracious with you? Has he ceased to love you and seek you out in all of your wanderings? No. He's continued to seek us out. Praise be to God. And that love that Christ has shown you and has shown me is intended to warm our hearts toward wandering sheep rather than to cause them to grow cold and despise them. You see, in the church, we are intended to be little reflections of the father little little reflections of the father's love for one another reminding always of his grace and his patience and his kindness and his tenderness and his persevering love for us we're supposed to be showing one another who he is and what he thinks about our sin so rather than despise Brothers and sisters who wander off into sin, we are to seek them and rescue them and reconcile them. Now, we're going to skip over the next little bit here and then look at verse 21 because Peter's here in all of this and then he comes up to Jesus just to check to make sure he's getting it. Verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, saying to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Because he's hearing what the Lord's saying to him. He's like, now hold on, Jesus, how, how many times do I need to forgive? And then he says, as many as seven times? Which Peter thinks he's, he's knocking out of the park here, because the Pharisees said you've got to do it three times. So Peter's like, I'm going to double that, plus one. He says, what about seven times? And then Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but... 70 times 7 or 77 times, which we all know is not mean like keep it a little book and be like, 65, 66. Like that's not at all what he's saying here. He's painting the picture that, that as God in Christ has continually forgiven you, so you continually forgive others. And then Jesus says, let me tell you a little story any time jesus says let me tell you a little story somebody's in trouble and that's that's what he, that's what he does here when he gives these parables he's going to take this truth that he's been laying out here and he's going to he tells the story of a great king a great king who calls together all of his servants and he wants to settle accounts with them and there's one particular servant who owes him an insurmountable debt if you calculate out uh, what this servant owes him it's some 6 billion dollars people say it is it's a debt he can never repay but it says in verse 26 the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Which everybody hearing this would have laughed. That's impossible. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him of his debt. Paid in full your debt to the king has been paid in full. It's a debt you couldn't work off if you worked every day for the rest of your life times, times 10,000 lives. You couldn't pay it off. Forgiven, in full, go free. And then it says he goes out and he sees somebody who owes him a couple hundred bucks. And he goes over and he starts choking them out. And the guy says to him the same thing that he said to, to the king. He says, Have patience with me and I will repay you. But he refused and he put him in prison. I will not forgive you. You are not going to be reconciled to me. And when his fellow servants, verse 31, saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. There's something about this guy who had been forgiven so much that you would expect him to act so much differently towards somebody else who's just like him. when he goes back and the king is angry and he calls him a wicked slave and he puts him in in jail and what we find here in this overarching passage of Matthew chapter 18 is we see Jesus telling his people that they are to have a particular posture one of humility in light of the way that God has loved them so much that has compassion for wandering sinners, that leads us to pursue them and to bring them back, to do whatever we can to bring them to repentance and extend forgiveness and for there to be reconciliation. That that is what is to mark the church. The church of Jesus Christ is to be a place that has a posture towards one another of love, patient, truth-telling, grace-extending, Forgiveness, always seeking it, reconciliation, love. That's the context here, the posture that he calls his people to have. Now, we skipped over verses 15 through 20. And the reason we did that is because I think we have to understand the process that Jesus lays out in the context of the posture. It informs the way we do the process of church discipline. It's what shepherds us along as we deal in real life situations with brothers and sisters. Because in the parable there with the sheep, these are nameless sheep. But but the situations that you and I are facing in our churches, they're not nameless sheep. They have faces. They have names. They're friends. They're people that we've walked with and prayed with, and that we love, and that we care about. So let's consider now, secondly, the the process for the church. That's the posture of the church. One of humble, gracious, pursuing, committed love, always seeking to extend forgiveness. But now the process for the church. How do we pursue, brothers and sisters, who wandering in sin. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. You gained your brother. Verse 16, but if, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse seventeen, and if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a gentile, and a tax collector. Jesus lays out here three steps, as it were, or three parts of the process. You have the, the the private encounter, the private encounter. You have a where you go with a partner. And then it goes public. So private, partner, public. Now, before we move into this process, I want to to clarify one more time. Even though Jesus gives us a process to follow here, it does not replace the need for prayerful, wise, pastoral care. So I have seen very few just black and white situations in all the time that I've been a pastor and a Christian there there's always it's just people and their sin are are just complex so we must be very careful to not allow the process of confrontation to consume the posture of compassion because because when we come in grace and truth they both have to be there We've got to bring both grace and truth. And we can go in with the mindset of, okay, we love them, we love them. But when we get in, we've got a process and we're just going to work this process out. And you're not jumping through the hoops in the way that we asked you to, so I'm sorry. And, and, and the, the, the process can eat up the posture. And we just have to be very careful to not do that. Because in the midst of church discipline issues and all of this, that this is, brothers and sisters, please hear this. This is not merely some kind of administrative process to get people to act right. To get people to be back in their place and do things the way they're supposed to. This is intended to be a, a guide for our love. And and I want to say this in all, yeah, in all truthfulness, that none of the things that we learn at this conference mean anything if we don't care about and love people. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 13. You can give your body to be burned. You can be the most... You know, you you can have everything. But if you don't have love, it's nothing. So brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to not seek to just be right, but to be right for the glory of God with grace and truth, aiming at loving your brother. And you know what? There's something about this this love that, that God uses, gospel love, to disarm brothers and sisters. Where they see when you when they can tell that you really care about them and you truly love them. Because I have found that if if people know that you love them, you can tell them just about anything. It paves the way. So step one here, private. Private encounter. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Brothers and sisters, life and ministry are messy, and the longer you walk with people, the more certain that sin will happen. And this first step here, this personal private meeting between the two of you. Now, I need to, to preempt this. With While this is a, applicable in all of our relationships, it's always good to go in to talk to somebody. The context here, verse 17 tells us, is in the church. This is talking about relationships in the church where you have committed relationships to one another, where you're intending to help each other to heaven by continuing calling each other to look to Christ and his finished work. Like that's the context here. It's the context of Hebrews 3.13. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's what the church is intended to be, a people who rally around the gospel, who are looking for Christ's return. And between now and when we see him, that we are helping each other to make sure they're not being hardened by sin so we might not fall away. And when sin occurs, it must be be dealt with, right? Now, did you notice here, who has the responsibility of taking the first step? your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Who has the responsibility? I do. You do. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him, don't, don't, get, don't get bitter and despise him and wait for him. Be like, well, he did it to me. I uh-uh. He's going to come to me. It's his fault. I didn't do this. No. It's on you. And vice versa, Matthew chapter 5, just a few chapters earlier, verse 23, it says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, meaning you've sinned against them, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. There's something the Lord wants more than your offering. He wants you to reconcile with your brother. Romans 12 would say it this way, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Which, by the way, this is for free, uh, that is one of my most used marriage counseling verses. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, Romans twelve eighteen. That in the end, you are going to answer before the Lord for the way that you respond to others. Not how somebody else has treated you. He'll deal with them. What that means is that the peace and the purity of the church is, in a sense, your responsibility. Regardless of whether you're the one that sinned against somebody else or somebody else sinned against you. That means that the sanctification of others in your church is partly your responsibility. We are our brother's keeper. So go. The first step of church discipline should be happening all the time. This is, by the way, brothers and sisters, what Mark was talking about earlier. This is basic Christianity. That when there's sin between brothers and sisters, that it needs to be dealt with. And this should be happening all the time. So, so brothers, I want to encourage you, teach and preach and model this. So this is one of the things that we do in our membership class. Whenever somebody's looking to join our church, one of the things we explain about the culture of the church is that if, if, if well, not if, but when there becomes an issue between you and somebody else and someone sins against you or you sin against them, you have the personal responsibility before God to go and have a personal conversation with them. We tell them that up front. This is part of what it means to be a Christian. Now, we as the pastors, our job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So we'll help you think through how to do that. But this is is on you. So so in this sense, a church is always disciplining one another, not only when we sin, but always pointing out evidences of grace, always instructing with words of truth, always bearing each other's burdens. We're always active in discipline, because it's part of discipling. It's what we do. You see, a healthy church realizes that discipline is both normal and necessary. It's part of following Jesus, and I want to say that when we see it informally in everyday ways, it makes the formal process much more understandable. When there's a culture where the normal thing that we're doing for one another is helping each other to root sin out of our lives, it makes much more sense when the process goes down the road to steps two and to step three. And it also produces a humility in people where they realize, you know what, apart from the grace of God, this would be me who's in a grave sin. So I want to ask you, is this first step of discipline happening regularly in your church? Is is this kind of the normal expectation of your discipling relationships? Are you teaching that? Are you modeling that for one another? And I want to ask you you this, is, is your church a safe place to confront other people with sin? Is your church a safe place to confess your sins with other people? If not, what what is it you think that might be hindering that kind of gospel air? Where the expectation is, yep, you know what, we are all we are all in need of grace all the time. What, What what is it you think? And this is where I would encourage you, please, brothers and sisters, model and apply the gospel all the time. So, and I think it begins with us as leaders. So, pastors, I want to ask are you are you correctable? Are you teachable? Are you confessing sins to people? Are you transparent and humble before your people? And this creating a culture where this is kind of the normal air that you breathe, every church is different, but it takes time and it takes prayer. But this is a wonderful prayer to pray. God, would you help this to be the air that we breathe, where it's normal for us to be helping each other to root out our sin. And also here, maybe in one sense, supremely the focus, did you notice the aim of initiating with your sinful brother? What's he after here? What's it say there in verse fifteen? If he listens to you, you have you've gained your brother. That's the aim, isn't it? It's reconciliation. If he listens, you have gained your brother. The word "gain" it can be translated "win." Paul uses it in, of limiting his free, his freedoms to win people to Christ. Paul uses it of and uh, translated "gain" with counting all things as rubbish in order to gain Christ. It's that picture. There's a prize here. It's your brother or sister walking in repentance before God and before one another. Church discipline at every level is not about administration. It's about salvation. It's about people's souls. It's about the glory of God. It's about his name. That when someone says they're a Christian, that means Jesus' name is attached to them. And everywhere they go, they're repping Jesus. Jesus' name is on the line with every single believer. His name among the nations is at stake in your church in community. This is a spiritual battle, and brothers and sisters, we are at war for one another's souls. Listen to this from 2 Corinthians 5, it says, God through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And yes, I understand there's discussion about whether that's the apostles, and, but that's also a principle for Christians. We have been entrusted with the gospel, the, the, the message of reconciliation, and we are continually imploring with one another, love Jesus, hate sin, cry out to him to give you a heart that does that. That's our constant message with one another. And that's step one, private, all the time happening, personal confrontation aimed at reconciliation reconciliation step two partner verse 16 but if he does not listen meaning if you've gone to them and explained about an offense and they say listen i i'm not i'm i'm not i don't care i'm not i'm not listening to you i understand what you're saying it's not your business um i don't know who you are to come up in here and start trying to judge me on if you think you're perfect or what this is but i'm not I, and they're, they're not listening he says, take, or one or two, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. As we know, unfortunately, not everybody responds well to calls of repentance. And when that happens, the circle must widen. It must widen. If he does not listen, if he shuts his ears to reproof and his heart to reconciliation, then you've got to get help one or two others. Now, how you select who these other people are, um, you know, it's kind of a case-by-case basis. In our church, very often, this is when one of the elders will get involved, or sometimes two elders, depending on the situation. But but when when an elder is involved, we don't want to uninvolve the member that the the situation's going on with. You wanna help them to walk through this process with this person. Because the ultimate aim is for them to be reconciled. Now, a couple reasons why involving others is important. First of all, the text tells us it gives confirmation. It says that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So I want to encourage you. I think it's already been said and will probably be said again. But at all costs, avoid doing this alone. You need others' eyes on this. And most foundationally, because you need to establish what's happening. You need somebody else there with you when you're establishing the facts. So you see what's happening clearly. But also, involving others provides wisdom. Provides wisdom. Proverbs eleven fourteen says it this way. In an abundance of counselors, there is safety. I can't tell you how thankful I am to have the elders that I have. I have some of the best elders on the planet by the grace of God. Those brothers, like I'm not in their league. They love the Lord and they are committed to the glory of God and serving alongside them is such an honor and I need them badly because I am always going to see things from certain angles and I need brothers to come in and help see the whole picture. Need to be asking one another, what what do you see that, that I don't see here? What, what ways do you think we should apply pressure here? Should we, should we slow down the process? Should we speed up? Or if there's, there's some leanings towards repentance, how do you, 2 Corinthians 7.10, tell whether this is worldly repentance, that they just hate that they're caught, or is this godly repentance? They're weeping because they've offended the, the Savior who shed his blood for them. How do we discern those things? You need wisdom. This is where having other people involved is essential. And brothers and sisters also remember that each case is unique. Every case is unique. So Jonathan Lehman in one of his articles he, he said this about parenting. He says, As as wise parents treat each child as individuals, so wise discipline treats each member individually. It's really that's that's a great statement, Jonathan. Remember to deal with each person, trying to understand what's going on in their heart. What's the motives behind why they're doing what they're doing? 1 Thessalonians 5.14 kind of paints a picture of all the kinds of people in your church. It says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. It's a great verse for church discipline. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. And also, the, the process here that Jesus lays out has flexibility. All right, so just because it goes step one, two, three, step two, well, step one and step two very often have like step two, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Like we're there, so right now I can think of of at least a half dozen cases in our congregation where we're kind of at step two, where there's multiple people involved with situations that are going on, but they're ongoing conversations. This isn't just a go in, are you in or are you out? And then like, boom, all right, step three. Like, that's not at all how it works. We're patient. We want to listen. And listen, please, always looking for evidences of grace. Love hopes all things. And I understand it's easy to be duped. But brothers, always looking for evidences of grace. Praying for God to help you to see evidences of grace in people who you're confronting. That there might just be little small steps back toward home because most people get into the mess they're in by a thousand small steps in the wrong direction and repentance is very often a thousand small steps in the right direction with some falling down and getting back up along the way so work with people be patient now sometimes sometimes situations need to happen quickly Sometimes they do. I have a friend um, who's, who's a pastor of a church who just unfortunately recently found out that one of his deacons who heads up another, another ministry has been using his authority to sexually manipulate people in, in the ministry. And when the person was confronted, they kind of dodged things and there's just no signs of repentance, just continual excusing and justification and all these kinds of things. And the process has moved very quickly. Uh, thank, thankfully, I mean, it's a, a hard and horrible situation anyway. But thankfully, there were no no minors involved. But it was it was still from hell. And it it moved quickly, and um, there's times that it has to happen that way, because of how severe it is, uh, and how unrepentant someone is. But usually. Usually it can be a patient process, and usually should be a patient process. You know, one of my greatest joys in pastoral ministry is to think back, I was reflecting on this as I was prepping, to think back on how many pastoral situations moved from about as far as you can go in step two to now people being fully restored and reconciled, and nobody in the rest of the church needed to know. Just the people who were directly involved, and praise be to God, He He did that. And if we'd have been hasty, which we were certainly tempted at certain times, um, I think we would have we would have harmed people. But brothers and sisters, I want you to know that this kind of intervention in people's lives, it saves people's souls. It saved my soul. In two thousand seven. I had been a pastor for about three years, and I had been struggling with pornography. And I loved Jesus, I did love Jesus. But I feared people so much. And every time I would give in, I would think, well next time, I'm not, next time I'll tell somebody. I love the Lord, I'm not doing this again. And it was, there was just a cycle. Every few months I'd give in and this again. And I had a brother confront me. And I had a brother get another brother. And they confronted me together. And you know, the whole time, the whole time before then, I just thought I couldn't afford to be honest about this sin. And I have come to see that I, I could not afford to not be. And I had some brothers say some very hard but loving words to me. And I really think that that confrontation between all those brothers sitting down with me, I don't think I'd been a pastor anymore. I think I would have harmed my wife deeply, wrecked my marriage. I have no idea. I, I shudder to think what would have happened if Reed Monahan had not sat down with me and looked in my eyes and said, Brother, you're in trouble. You need help. And if my elders at the time had not sat down with me and said, brother, you've been acting like a hypocrite. But Jesus loves repenting hypocrites. So let's turn. 2007 was the hardest year of my life. But church discipline in this formative step two kind of process, God used it. And he used a restorative process that to this day I look back on. And you know what? Even if I wasn't a pastor, I'm free. Like, by the grace of God, I'm not in the dark anymore. And I just, some of y'all in here right now are in the dark, and you're hiding in your sin, and you've got all the reasons in the world why you think you can't tell somebody. Don't leave this conference without making a decision before the Lord to talk to somebody and reaching out and setting up an appointment and to repent. Walk with brothers and sisters through this. I'll pray to that end, brothers and sisters. We all need help interacting with God. This is what covenantal love is. This is what membership is. We help each other to heaven. We help each other to remember the gospel. We help each other to run to the cross and to find the grace that we need. Nathan helped David. Paul helped Peter. And I don't know about you, but I think, when I look back on the moments that have most marked my life as a Christian, someone in there rebuked me for something. <laughs> and I praise God for it. Love people that way. So, so those of you who think that it's unloving, church discipline is unloving, I want you to know, in all graciousness, that's just not true. It is unloving to let people drown and to watch them. It is unloving for someone to walk around unrepentant and hardened, blaspheming the name of Christ when they say they're a Christian but living like they're from hell. It's unloving to let people walk like that. Love goes and gets just like Jesus did. But sometimes it needs to go to step three. Public. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In this final step here, the pressure mounts to about as weighty a place as it can be. Tell it to the church. God uses the church as the final messenger of mercy to wandering sheep. The church as a whole, as a congregation, has been charged with the care of that person's soul before God. So there's a time where you got to tell it to the church. What that means for us is because we have, we have membership that, that we intend for it to mean something. We have, we have members meetings where only members are invited. So this is not like a community thing. This is a, this is a family conversation and that at those meetings is when we have this kind of public discussion about unrepentant sin that is refused step one and step two and however many steps have been in between there and at those meetings what we need to do is we need to explain what is happening and what needs to happen so how many how many details should you share when you do this I think it's enough to be clear about why discipline might be necessary or is necessary, depending on where you are in the process, without tempting people to sin by giving them too much information, and without unnecessarily shaming the person or their family who's, gonna, uh, who's involved here. Remember that this is not discipline is not punishment. You're not flogging someone. It's strong love, but it is love. And you've, you've got to remember that people are going to talk anyway, so it helps for them to at least have truth to talk about. So you don't want to do too much, but you don't want to do too little either. And This is where you need much wisdom and good counsel from other brothers. And this is where we also, we encourage the members who have a relationship with that person to use every bit of relational capital that you have right now. Do whatever you can. Go to their house. Reach out to them. And if you don't know them, this is not the time for you to try to to build a friendship. This is a time for you to pray and plead. your your church will need wisdom in how to do that. Pastors, I want want to encourage us as we're walking through church discipline cases to remember to guard our hearts because they are very often a heavy investment of time and energy and just soul-grieving work. And for a pastor who loves his people, it can just drain you. So be very, very careful that you don't become bitter and begin taking things personally listen to this from Galatians 6 it was read earlier Galatians 6 1 says brothers if anyone is caught in any transgression you who are spiritual meaning godly mature should restore him in a spirit of gentleness keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted in the context I think that temptation is right back at the last verse of chapter 5, which is being bitter towards one another and consuming each other. You can be tempted easily, pastors, to begin to despise the people who you're dealing with. Guard your, your hearts. When you feel angry and you begin to grumble against, go to the Lord and ask for help. And also for the people in all of this, tremendous wisdom is needed you've you've got, to, you've got to be able to take the temperature on the flock what what is your congregation ready for have, have you taught them have you taught them sufficiently enough are, are they ready for this kind of of action so so our church Delray baptist church was founded in eighteen ninety seven um, it was a, a kind of flagship southern baptist church in our area um, in the 50s, 60, 60s, 70s, 80s, in the 90s kind of dwindled off. And um, we had a brother who was before us who kind of helped clean up the roles a little bit. But there are there are people on our church's membership role that I have literally never seen in the building since the time that I've been there over the past three years. And one of the the, the touchy things that we have to wade through when we think about having a church that has meaningful membership is is when do we begin to discipline for non-attendance? When do we look at Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, and the command to not forsake the assembling together? How do we think about that in such a way that we have to say, listen, this person hasn't been here in a long time, and we have no way of knowing whether they're following Jesus or not. So for our congregation, we've begun going down, down that road, and there's been some cases we've already been able to undertake and the thing that's begun to happen, because our elders, I think, are shepherding well, is people have begun to see, because we use a membership directory that we keep it updated, we encourage people to pray through membership directory a page a day as part of your, your daily devotional, and there's people whose pictures aren't in there. They just have like little, um, we used to have a little picture of a sheep there, but we don't have that anymore, it's just a little box. Um, <laughs> and, and people will say, hey, uh, who's, who's this person? I don't think I've ever seen them. And when that starts happening, then you know, I think they're starting to understand, that it's not normal for Christians to not be gathering together. So one of the things our elders have done is we put together a little statement, it's on Nine Mark's website, that talks about um, what does regular church attendance look like? It's become part of our, our membership class, it's part of a discipling tool that we use where we talk about what does it mean to be in regular attendance at a local church? And one of the things we're trying to do now on the front end is, is is when people are coming through the class, we're laying out that expectation. But but how do we, how do we do and shepherd brothers and sisters who have been at that church for a long time before me who weren't weren't ready for this idea of disciplining somebody for for not being here? That's just not what we've ever done here. That seems so unloving. I don't think Jesus would do that. Well, by God's grace, we've been able to move that way. And you've just got to take the temperature of of your congregation and know what they're ready for and what they're not. Well, what if in all of this, after you tell it to the church and people leverage a relational capital, what if they won't repent? Well, if he refuses to listen even to the church, then you let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So this is very important. It goes back to Jonathan, really good question about Matthew chapter 7 earlier about judging. The same Jesus who calls us to pursue wandering sheep is the same Jesus who tells us that there will come a time to humbly judge others, to no longer cast pearls before swine, to treat people as Gentiles and tax collectors. Excommunication, where the church withdraws their affirmation of that person's profession of faith. So, with the same illustration that Mark used, so whenever someone joins a church, We share the person's testimony, and the congregation says, that sounds like a credible um, testimony. Everything that we've seen in their life seems to support that they are indeed following Christ. So what we're doing when we vote is we are all affirming, yes, we think that person, from everything that we can tell, is a Christian. And now we intend to help them to heaven, and we expect them to do the same for us. We're going to help each other with the gospel all the time. And Alexandria, Virginia, which is where our church is, if you want to know what a Christian looks like, you look at Bob, this person who's just come into membership. This is what a Christian looks like. Church discipline is the exact opposite, where because of unrepentant sin, whatever it may be, there comes a time when we can no longer say, Alexandria, Virginia, Bob is definitely a Christian. And there has to come a time that we can, we can just no longer affirm his profession of faith, either because he said, I don't want Jesus ruling over me, and you can't tell me what to say long enough. They were like, that's just not how a Christian acts. The Lord knows those who are his, but we can no longer say, world, this is what a Christian looks like. That's what church discipline is, and there is a time that that, that comes to pass, and where you treat them as a tax collector and a sinner. This means that he is not welcome to be a member of the church nor take of the Lord's Supper, but Christians still love them. Not as a brother or a sister, but the way that Jesus loves sinners. So, as we talked about on the panel, yes, we want you to come to Sunday morning. We want you there. There's no better place for somebody to be than under the preaching of the gospel. And this kind of move is a heartbreaking undertaking. It brings great sorrow to pastors and to the church. And our posture when it happens is one that should always be hopeful that it will bring about restoration and repentance and reconciliation for the person and for everybody who's watching. There was a church discipline situation at a friend's church um, where there was a guy that was disciplined, a longtime member, for repeated drunkenness. And this process had gone on for, for multiple years where they were trying to, to walk him through this. And when they finally came to at the time for the, the congregation to, to excommunicate him, um, one particular member, um, we'll call her Patty, Patty had some pushback on this, and she was not happy about it. So the pastor and another one of the pastors, they went over and they sat down with Patty and uh, with her husband and began to read through Ephesians chapter 3 and got to chapter 3 verse 10 that talks about how the church is to be this display of the wisdom and the glory of God for everyone to see. And that this is why we needed to do church discipline, because Jesus' name is attached to this person and to our church, and if we just wink at sin, we, we just can't do that. Jesus' name is worth more than that. And, and in reading Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, she began to just weep. And when she could finally gather her, her thoughts and her, her composure, she said that at that moment, she realized that she had not been living, for the glory of God, and that she thought that the reason that maybe she was so upset with the discipline that was happening toward that guy was because she realized that she was in the same condition as him, and she got saved, like got saved, right there, during a church discipline situation. See, that's what happens when the gospel's clarified. That's what this does. It shows you what the gospel is that there is good news for sinners who will turn from their sin and come unto Christ and be forgiven. There is good news there, but there is no good news for those who will not. Only judgment awaits, and it makes things crystal clear for people. Church discipline, when done correctly, it may bring sinner to repentance, but it will always put the gospel on full display for people to see. And you know what? It may even bring that person who was disciplined to repentance. Because when you hand them over to Satan, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the aim and the hope is that their soul may be saved. So brothers and sisters, I want to implore you to pray for those whom if you have to excommunicate someone, if the church excommunicates someone, pray for that person to repent, because you know what? God can do that. I'm gonna read you the the testimony of, of a friend of mine named Andrew Walker. Seven years before this letter that I'm about to read you, he was excommunicated from his church for unrepentant sexual immorality and lying. I asked him if I could share all this and he said yes. Seven years later, he comes back to the congregation that he was excommunicated by, and he reads this letter. I'd like to read it for you. He said, it's very hard to articulate the feelings I have when I consider God's kindness to me as expressed through the love of this church. When I walked away from this church and from God, my life was marked by deception, hypocrisy, and immorality. I lied to you all with my life, if not by my words. For that I am very sorry. I brought shame to my parents, my family, and most bitterly to my Lord. But in the face of my wandering, God saved me from my sin, and he brought me to repentance. I want to commend to you the men that make up your pastoral staff. They obeyed scripture when it was not easy to do so. Matthew 18 gives the guidelines for church discipline and they followed them. They also did what they did not have to do. They didn't have to treat me the way they did during the process. They didn't have to call me and ask how I was doing. They didn't have to get coffee together with me and encourage me and tell me that they were praying for me. They didn't have to email me devotionals like they did. They didn't have to appeal and appeal and appeal to me that I would turn and repent. I would have expected or at least understood a desire to dismiss me me quickly and quietly. But instead, they demonstrated amazing love to me. I was removed from membership for my own sake. Yes, but mostly it was for the reputation of the gospel. Apart from the weekly proclamation of the gospel, In the careful expositing of God's word, I believe there are few, if any, ordinances of the church that bring the gospel more to bear than the proper practice of church discipline. I hope you are as encouraged as I am when I read Hebrews 12. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. The one he loves. You loved me by disciplining me. You helped me to see the severity and the beauty of Christ's sacrifice. Because of church discipline, I had my eyes opened. Because of church discipline, I tasted the world and found it bitter. Because of church discipline, I felt the cold contrast of life outside the church. But I remembered something of fellowship, grace, and love. I remembered this church. The Lord used these pastors and your shining example to draw me back to himself. I thank God for them, and I thank God for you. Brethren and sisters, you never know how God is going to use obedience to his word. Our job is to be faithful to what Christ calls us to do and to allow him to handle the consequences. Brethren and sisters, pray that God would create a culture in your church where love is put on display, where reconciliation and forgiveness are always pursued, and that the steps that Jesus lays out, are followed in faith, trusting that Jesus will use his word to draw his people back to himself. May we be instruments of his mercy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we pray that it would not return void. Lord, whatever portion you would apply to each of our hearts, we pray that something would stick in a way that would shape our hearts before you and shape your church that you have called us to be a part of. Father, we pray, we pray for any in this room right now who are hiding and harboring sin, that you might lovingly haunt them and bring them to repentance. And God, we pray for those that we love who are ensnared in sin, that we would, like the Good Shepherd, Go seek that one, and that by your grace, they'd be brought home. I pray in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen.